It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 non-stop destination for A's baseball. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We've got broadcasting legends for you. We got Howie Rose from the New York Mets. We got Ted Leitner from the San Diego Padres. And our buddy, former A, and now does the Astros, Steve Sparks. But we're going to start with Howie Rose, and we're talking about the New York Mets as they're making deals this winter. Howie, how you doing? Chris Townsend with the Oakland A's. Chris, I'm well. How are you? Happy New Year. Yeah, you too. And by the way, congratulations! You got a you got a late Christmas gift. Uh, you got one of the best players in baseball. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's that's going to be fun. Hopefully. Yeah, I got a buddy who's a big New York Met fan. Lives in Manhattan. He's been texting me all day. I mean, the fan base. I mean, and you get Carlos Carrasco, who's going to give you some quality innings. Just 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 talk about how things are just different now. New ownership and the Mets are. It's just a different deal. Well, you know, you, you bring up the ownership, and I think the most important ramification of the change was exhibited on Twitter in a couple of hours after the deal was made today because I never saw such a level, or had anyway, level of excitement coming from Mets fans about an acquisition of, of that magnitude um, in, in a long, long time. And obviously, the previous ownership was hamstrung financially. And deals like this really were not plausible. At least they hadn't been for about the last dozen years. But when when this thing came into fruition today, and you know, it's not as though it had been something that was publicly rumored for three or four days to the point where it became imminent, or at least the closing of the deal became imminent. This is something that, you know, hit everybody in the face at the same time. And it was quite uh, quite refreshing, as most Mets fans will tell you. Yeah, how much does this kind of remind you of what we saw last year with Mookie Betts? You know, there's one year left on the deal. You trade for him. You get him in. You get him inside the house. And next thing you know, you ink him up to a long-term deal. Do you think it's going to be very similar to what the Dodgers did with Mookie? Yeah, I think that's the the comparison, and I think that's really the the prototype for what the Mets are hoping to do here. Now, what the numbers turn out to be, I don't know. I think one thing that Lindor has to factor in is that there's going to be a, a fairly deep crop of free agent shortstops next offseason, unless some of them sign this coming, you know, baseball season between now and the end of um, October anyway. And so that notwithstanding, you know, if you're Frankie Lindor and you're getting a big offer from the Mets, you have to consider, well, do I really want to jump into that mosh pit with other shortstops and, and risk that maybe I won't get as much uh, when there are competition team by team for, for shortstops. I mean, look, if it, it, it shouldn't take too long. I don't know if it'll take quite as short a period as the Mets deal with the Dodgers did, but it's obviously on everybody's radar that the Mets want to get something done long-term with the door. Yeah. How big is it that your owner was not in baseball last year and a situation where everybody's dealing with, you know, the loss of not having fans, only a 60-game season, you only made so much money. But for your owner coming in, he wasn't really a part of that. How does that really help the Mets? Well, it certainly helps them with deals like we've seen today. And it will help them in that they, whether they look around the margins or they go for another big fish, if, if the uh, financial structure will withhold it in, in a George Springer type or a Trevor Bauer. I don't really see Bauer as a fit right now, but um, it, it, it certainly gives them the flexibility to make more significant moves. But we don't know if Steve Cohen is going to have an appetite for A, uh, going right up to or even above the tax threshold, or 
and and this is noteworthy as well. You know, if you're Steve Cohen and you're bringing in another marquee type player here, then you're going to lose a draft pick, just as if they were to lose Francisco Lindor. If they don't sign him, they would gain a draft pick. Um, so, you know, there are other things to be considered apart from every dollar and cent, but they're still in pretty good shape to be able to make more significant moves, I think. Yeah, no, it's exciting times because, you know, when you start acquiring players and now it's kind of like challenging the Yankees because you know as well as anybody the Battle of New York, it hasn't really been on in a while. I I, I think it's game on. I think it's going to be really exciting. What do you think about the Battle of New York now between the Yankees and the Mets? Well, we knew this was going to happen because for all the time that Mets fans wondered about what it would be like if the team were ever put up for sale, I think the the hope was that you would have extremely well-heeled people lining up along Seaver Way to make their presentation to try to buy the team with the expectation that they would go right after the Yankees. That's exactly what's happened here. The Mets now have, by far, the richest owner in baseball, and a guy who, according to those who have worked for him and those who know how he operates, is not one that fancies being second best at anything. And that certainly is going to manifest in how he runs the Mets. Not that he's said publicly he's taking dead aim at the Yankees. He's just worrying about making the Mets the best they could be. And with the resources they now have in the market that they play in, um, you better believe that this is a two-team town again, and it's going to be fun. I got, we were talking about it before the show. You know, we've gotten to know Sandy over the years. He's a friend of the program. And we were just talking about the big names that Sandy Alderson has dealt in his career. When you start thinking about Ricky Henderson and Jose Canseco and your Mark McGuire, Francisco Lindor. I mean, the names Sandy has acquired and moved on. It's pretty amazing, the list. You know, because you know Sandy, you would appreciate this if you've seen him in any interviews that he's done since the ownership change for the Mets, Sandy came back. When Sandy was previously the Mets general manager, he was more circumspect. He was more reserved. He was more guarded in comments that he would make uh, because of the fact that everybody knew that he didn't have, uh, A, the amount of finances to work with, certainly that he does now, and B, the fact that he had uh, ownership that were very involved in most every decision. Uh, I don't know to what level Steve Cohen is going to be involved in every decision um, that, that comes up moving forward. But what we do know is that Sandy, to those of us who have known him uh, prior to joining the Mets for the second time and, and now uh, have seen a much different person. I mean, he seems so uh, loose and re-energized and um, it's just wonderful to see. I mean, he's such a good man to begin with, as you well know, uh, well know. but to see him in this environment um, at this stage of his career, I think he feels like this is something of a rebirth. Yeah, you know, we, you know, last time we got to see him face to face, it's kind of sad, but uh, was down in San Diego at the winter meetings. And you're right. He was so relaxed. Um, he's happy. You, you know, I, I it, and, and, and really what you have there is truly, I think at some point you could say maybe a Hall of Fame career, but you truly have one of the brightest minds in the game. And now he's got a real checkbook to work with. Yeah, and he's also, and you know this, and, and people in Oakland, I'm sure, will feel the same way. He's just one of the best people in baseball. You know, Sandy's antennas stretch far beyond the game. He's an incredibly interesting man to simply talk to. Um, he's engaging. He is so well-versed on so many things. And spending a little time talking to him is, is an education. And, you know, again, for those of us who have dealt with him before, to see Sandy in the second go round with the Mets, um, you know, have a lot freer reign than he did the first time um, is a lot of fun because um, just to see him on these zooms and to see the different level of relaxation and um, you know, there's a whimsy sometimes and, and some of the things that he says that, um, you know, you just have to step back and really enjoy. I'm just so happy for Sandy um, that he's back in this situation under these circumstances. How much are you looking forward to getting back, doing play-by-play, fans in the stands, and, and getting baseball back to what it should be? Nothing matters more in all of what you just put forth 
than getting fans back in the stands. Um, I don't know a person in baseball who broadcasts the games who would say that he or she did not noticeably miss their presence last year. Um, you would expect at the end of a big play, a reaction that never came, save for the phony pumped in crowd noise, which did nothing to enhance the moment, at least for me. Um, so I have really dreamt about putting 42,000 people back in City Field at some point in calendar year 2021. I hope it happens. I hope this vaccine is rolled out quickly and efficiently to the point that that becomes reality. And that I'm telling you, this is just something I've thought about. That first game, when I know that we've got a full house waiting at City Field for the first time since pre-pandemic, um, that will automatically, in all likelihood, rise to the very top of the ch- of the list of most memorable games that I'll have ever broadcast. Because the emotions and the, the, the goosebumps and the excitement uh, and the passion will be so real and so profound and so deep, um, I almost can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Not that we ever necessarily took it for granted, because we're all so appreciative to do what we do for a living, um, but the opportunity to do it in a full house is something that um, I, I just I cherish, and I can't wait to have the opportunity to do it again. Yeah, when there is a full house, I can't wait to see how you guys are going to honor one of the greatest players of all time who we lost, Tom Seaver. Obviously from Fresno, was up in Napa. Uh, I know what he means to the organization. He's truly one of the greatest pitchers to have ever lived. I think that's going to be a very special night when you guys honor Tom Terrific. Yeah, there's a statue that's been commissioned that will be unveiled at some point in 2021. Um, Originally, the hope if not the expectation was that it would be ready on opening day and and theoretically it might well be but it's not going to be unveiled until we can get fans in the park hopefully a full house you know whenever we get to that point um i know that the siever family um would certainly like it to be under those circumstances too because you know they want to share that moment with fans uh my my hope my vision is that at some point in 2021 um, Nancy and his daughter Sarah and Annie and, and their respective families uh, will be present at City Field along with the packed house for what will be a very emotional day and one where with the passage of time because we lost Tom at the very beginning actually uh, technically he passed at the very end of August but uh, it was not released uh, the news of it was not released for a couple of days but you know by the time they get around to unveiling the statue and getting the people back in the ballpark. Enough time will have passed so that um, as mournful as those days immediately following his passing was to the fans, it'll be a little more celebratory next year. We'll have a a chance to reflect on Tom's career and celebrate it rather than simply mourn his passing the way we've been doing. And and, and I'm very excited for that uh, hopeful eventuality. So coming up here today at 2.30 Pacific, uh, we're going to have our, our, our man Ray Fossey on. So do you want, me, <laughs> you, want me, you, you want me to tell him that Bud Harrelson was safe? No, we're past that. We're <laughs> past that. I, I got, you know what? I got past that when, and I know I've said this before, when, when, whenever I see Ray, I mean, he's just so nice, so friendly. And I know he sends me a message because it, it takes me, probably six weeks to get the feeling back in my right hand after I shake hands with him. So if there has been anything positive to come out of this awful pandemic, it may well be the end of the ritualistic handshake, but I shudder at the thought of bumping elbows or shoulders with Ray because I might end up flying about 50 feet from where I was standing. I tell everybody when you're going to shake Ray Fossey's hand, you got to be ready because if you're not, he'll, he'll just engulf you and crush your hand. You'd better have a, a third hand available because you're going to need a backup. But he's also one of the great guys in baseball, and I absolutely love talking to him. So please send him my best. Howie, we always appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on the program. Uh, Mets baseball, it's going to be a lot of fun. Let's talk once the season gets going. Be safe and be well. My pleasure. Same to you, and let's get her going. Howie Rose.
Ray Fosty, always a fun story. Ted Leitner's retiring from the San Diego Padres. Now, if you're someone like Billy Bean or myself who grew up in Southern California, you've basically listened to Ted or watched Ted on television uh, your entire life. I mean, Ted Leitner has been on the air my entire life. I've been watching him. Uh, big fan, great guy, and he's finally retiring from Major League Baseball. Still going to work for the Padres and still going to do San Diego State basketball and football, but what a career he had in the booth for the San Diego Padres. Ted Leitner retiring after all these years. Ted, how you Hello. doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland Athletic. Chris Townsend, how the heck are you? We are doing well, and I was just thinking about it having you on again. Did you ever think a guy who grew up in New York, graduated from the University of Oklahoma, you're a Sooner, and then would spend so much time in beautiful San Diego? Did you ever envision that? No, because I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a realist. And, and those kind of things don't occur to me that such wonderful, wonderful things could happen to me in my lifetime. And that's part of what happened. You know, we've talked about, you know, whether it was, you know, I grew up in San Diego. I've told you that whether it's Billy Bean or myself watching you and you just think about your career on the local news, Padres, Aztecs, Chargers, Clippers, television, radio, just uh, just an amazing con career. Congratulations. You've earned everything. I appreciate it very much, and it's fascinating because I really never had eyes that big, as my mother would say. <laughs> you got big eyes. You, you, you couldn't finish that meal. You got big eyes. And, and the same thing I never had. I never had. I was lucky. I think that's good because you have really good to have goals and, and you know work hard and be ambitious, but I never had big eyes like that. I was, at, uh, in fact, before Oklahoma, I was at Oklahoma State for undergraduate work, and we worked at the campus radio station, and I, we did the campus, uh, I did the campus, uh, the varsity football and basketball play-by-play -play on the campus station. And I thought, you know what? You know what, Chris? If I could get a job at whatever university and radio station in, in that city and, and, and do play-by-play -play of football and basketball in a, for college, I'd be satisfied and happy the rest of my life based on my love of play-by-play. Of -play. And I did that. And it grew and grew and grew and, like you said, became television sports and talk shows and NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball play-by-play. -play. And I just uh, I pinch myself and think, this all happened. But you know what, dummy? It didn't just happen because of you. It happened because every time I turned around, somebody was there to help me, give me a break, give me great advice. And I wish I'd had that advice in my personal life. Then probably I would not have been divorced four times. But professionally speaking... <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful, unbelievable run. Yeah, you know, me growing up down there and, and at night listening to you and Jerry Coleman was so special. And I just think, you know, Ted, 41 years with one franchise is, you know, people dream of that kind of run where we see so many different people move market to market to market to know, as you always said, my Padres, uh, 41 years. Congratulations in Major League Baseball. There's very few in the history of the game that have a run like that. I, I know that, and I appreciate that very, very much. And I've heard from a lot of them who have and others, obviously, who have passed that I think about all the time that it never occurred to me I could have a run in terms of, you know, years like a Jack Buck and, and, and Mel Allen and people like that. It just it staggers me. And uh, the idea that, uh, hey, if Vince Scully is as great as there is, you know, could do 60, 67 years, whatever. And if I could do 41, I'll take it. And I'm not comparing myself to Vinny in any way because nobody should. And I certainly don't. But it's been absolutely amazing to me to have that run. And you mentioned Jerry Coleman, my partner. And here, here's a kid, me, a vendor at Yankee Stadium as, as a kid in New York. And, and going along, looking to my left, I see Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Elston Howard and Yogi Berra are playing. And I look up to my right, because even then I wanted to do something in sports and sports broadcasting. I'd look at the press box and I'd see Mel Allen, Red Barber, Joe Garagiola, and, and Jerry Coleman broadcasting the games. And then, then I would spend please, this is like, you know, somebody would write this as a fiction novel. I've spent 35 years with that same Jerry Coleman side by side doing Padre baseball. That's, you can't dream that. You can't think that. You can't have that as a goal. You'll be very disappointed. And all of it happened to me. 
Yeah, and Jerry Coleman, what a special man. People forget what a what terrific player he was and the championships that he was a part of, but he always said, you know, the Ford C. Frick Award was big, but getting into the Marine Hall of Fame meant more to him. Uh, just talk about your guys' relationship because that's, you know, that's a long time for two guys to be together. And and, and uh, it's just, and I've always said this to everybody, that uh, we never in 35 years, and I say this, by the way, with all my partners in football and in, in basketball and in, in baseball, especially, never once has there been a look at each other and say, what the hell you say that for? Or that was stupid. Or what are you doing? And yeah, that, that kind of thing. It's, it's never been so much as a raised eyebrow, a text or an email in the later years with each other with any kind of, of, of anger, any kind of disappointment. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mentioned four divorces, but I'll tell you what, my, the greatest relationship I ever had was with my partners. Always, always, because Sherry told me that. Your job is to make your partner look good. Never correct him on the air. Never try to top him when he says something. Oh, yeah, but here's so-and-so and add a statistic or something on top of that. Never do that. I learned from him, and it was an absolute like being, not, not just learning, but the guy who played you know, was Mickey Mantle's roommate and play with DiMaggio and all those guys against Willie Mays and Jackie Robinson and all those great players that it was like going to Cooperstown and, and being with the Hall of Fame every day broadcasting with Jerry. And like you said, I was at that uh, event in, in uh, when they inducted him just before he went into the broadcast uh, wing of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. We stopped there in Quantico and had the big dinner when he was installed in the Marine Corps Sports Hall of Fame. And we're waiting and we're waiting. And then the commandant of the Marine Corps walks in, going toward the podium. He sees Jerry, who he knows, <laughs> unbeknownst to us, not just of him, but knows him. And the commandant, the, the three-star general, makes a beeline and, and makes a right turn and goes right to Jerry and has a face-to-face -face conversation with him for a minute and a half before the program can begin. And I said to Jerry later, why didn't you tell me you do the commandant of the Marine Corps? I, I don't know. Nobody, you know. I didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> that was Jerry. His, his, his ego was taken out at, at birth. Somebody once sent me a um, uh, picture of Jerry Coleman Day when he returned from the Korean combat as a fighter pilot and was given that day at Yankee Stadium. And there was Mel Allen at the microphone as the MC. And there's a guy in a Navy dress uniform with all these medals. And I say to Jerry when I get this picture from a fan, a listener, Jerry, isn't that Admiral Bull Halsey, one of the greats of all time? Yeah. He was at your day when you came back at Yankee Stadium? Yeah. Jerry, it was just after <laughs> life. No ego, no boasting, no telling stories about hey, Bull Halsey came to my And that day, later on, when I emceed Jerry Coleman Day at San Diego at Petco Park, when they, when they opened and, and showed the new statue to him, Bull Halsey, General Halsey's granddaughter was there and i thought now that is coming full circle and that is beautiful wow yeah and you know when i think about you know someone like a billy bean what's that like for you when a guy like billy bean goes i've been watching you my entire life <laughs> it's been you know what and, and i always talk about this with jesse agler my partner who's taking over for me jesse the money's good you know it's not great we're not in a huge market the money's good but you know what's better the relationship and the brotherhood we have with all the broadcasters whom we see when they come into Petco and we go on the road back in the normal days of traveling with the team and getting to know, I mean, come on, getting to know Jack Buck, getting to know Vince Scully, getting to know John Miller. I mean, that's just uh, all the guys with the Giants, by the way, and with the A's and, and Ken Korak, uh, one of my fellow San Diego State guys, and, and just becoming friends and that friendship means so much to me that it's absolutely been amazing you know, to be in that business and, and to have that. And that has been so precious, all of that. Plus, you meet some incredibly famous people, like you said. For Billy Bean to say that, you know, Billy Bean is a genius. I'm not sure people understand that. Billy's a genius. He will be in the Hall of Fame for somebody who innovated and changed baseball. And uh, he doesn't go around telling everybody about that. I remember when, when Moneyball came out and I talked to him on the air in an interview on my talk show back then. And I said, Billy, they're talking about you being egotistical because you mentioned this and you mentioned that. You didn't write the book. <laughs> Lewis wrote the book. You didn't write the book. And he laughed and we laughed and, you know, that's the kind of thing. But they don't understand that Billy is different from almost every general manager 
and then co-president and what have you in baseball. And for him, really, to even know my name is part of what I'm talking about, beyond the money, beyond the local fame, it's knowing a Billy Bean. I had the same situation one time at a shopping center in San Diego, and someone tapped me on my shoulder, and uh, it was, uh, I think, what just flew out of my mind, not who became a dear friend, Wally Shira. It was Wally Shira, one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts, who had uh, gone in Mercury, Gemini, and had a moon mission, the only person to ever do that, and a fighter pilot, like Jerry Coleman, and uh, one of my all-time heroes were the Mercury 7 astronauts from the 60s who invented spaceflight, the bravest men and frontier-busting people you could ever met. And Wally Shira watches me on television and stops me and says, hey, Dad, I'm Wally Shira. And I, I wouldn't know, <laughs> looking at him, that it was. And, 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 that, and that kind of, then he would come on my radio shows and we would go to lunch and stuff like that. And I'm picturing myself talking to my you know, you know, beloved parents who are gone. I'm sitting here with Captain Wally Shira, astronaut, United States Navy, and so forth. And he introduced me to John Glenn. He introduced me to other people like that. And in and, and this business, to have that, when you're just some local schnook, which is all I ever was, some vendor from Yankee Stadium, and to have this career and meet these amazing people, it has been absolutely in, – in, 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 when last time that Padres were in San Francisco, a couple of seasons ago, when we were obviously on the road – uh, I walked out of the of the broadcast booth, and General Yeager, Chuck Yeager, in a wheelchair, was right down the way there. And I walked up, and I, having been in the army, I gave General Yeager a salute. And he smiled, and I smiled, and I said thank you. And I walked by, and everybody knows he's the one that broke the sound barrier, an amazing fighter pilot, and so forth. Just recently passed away, one of the great Americans. To meet, meet these people, when I consider myself nothing. This business has given me all of that and so much more. Yeah, hanging out with astronauts got to be a little bit bigger than uh, calling Michael Cage blocking out and getting a rebound. (laughs) Wally told me a great story. Wally Sherrod told me a great story that uh, two of his buddies, Neil Neil Armstrong and and another astronaut, were going to a speaking engagement when they were late in their 70s. And they had a ferocious uh, thunderstorm on the way from Boston to New York, I believe it was, or vice versa. And uh, they were sitting in first class, and the, uh, that young flight attendant had no idea who they were. <laughs> and uh, the thunderstorm, the plane was rocking all over the place. And uh, one of the astronauts is sleeping, and Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon, is reading a book. And she squats down next to Neil on the aisle, or Mr. Armstrong, and says to him, it'll be okay. And and Neil Armstrong looks at her and says, what will? It's just a thunderstorm. It's no big deal. <laughs> he says, oh, okay, it's all right. I'm fine. She doesn't know. She's talking to a man who's been a fighter pilot who test piloted all these things, who landed on the moon while he was running out of fuel and calmly said 500, 300, and figured there's nothing left there. You have no fuel. And calm as can be, going over the boulders, trying to find a place as, as a Lem, the Lem is the lunar lander is coming in, and uh, and, he, and the other astronaut wakes up next to him, and uh, says, "What does she want?" And and uh, well, just, and uh, Neil Armstrong says, "She thinks you're scared." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these guys are real scared in a thunderstorm on a on a, on a seven thirty seven. Uh huh. You know, you're leaving the Padres in a pretty good place as they've had a, you know, last year, obviously a quick season, but got in the postseason, made some really good pitching moves uh, here in the offseason. And if there's 162 games, I think we're expecting a nice battle there in the NL West between the Dodgers and the Padres. Talk about what you see for San Diego coming up here this season. I tell you what, the one thing that people, especially in my own company, the Padres, Say you're leaving at the wrong time. <laughs> no, I always say my timing is not the best. It's never been the best. But I fully realize, having seen the acquisition of the prospects and now the acquisition of of amazing, amazing pitchers, you know that uh, I've never seen. There hasn't ever been the potential of a of a uh, of a uh, kind of a starting rotation where you have these guys. We have you, Darvish, and uh, Blake Snell, and Nelson Lamette hopefully coming back from injury, and Chris Paddock hopefully bouncing back, but with great stuff and makeup and toughness. There's never been a Padre rotation 
that four and possibly five deep ever. And with Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis and these other players, you know, the general manager, A.J. Preller, has given away about 31 prospects that he acquired and still has not given away, for the most part, the top and best prospects that are that major league ready. And so to be able to do this, you're right. This could be, I'm not saying they're the 1998 Padres that went to the World Series. I'm not saying they're that club. But even that club with Kevin Brown and Andy Ashby and Joey Hamilton, I think there's a possibility, greatly, that this starting location will be better than the 98 club. And that says a lot. Padre fans, I think, are going into an era, not just you know winning a division title in 96 and then down to last place in 97, then back in 98. I think for the first time, they're going to have continued success year to year to year with all this talent and an incredible ownership that says, whatever, Manny Machado's $300 million, give it to him. That's never happened in San Diego with any ownership in any sport, not just the Padres. And that's Peter Seidler. And with that kind of backing and that kind of brilliant general manager with Preller, I think the best times ever, continuously, like I said, for Padre fans, are about to begin whenever this season is about to begin. So our fan base understands, you know, Bill King would go from, you know, Raiders, Warriors, A's. Uh, Ted Leitner is the exact same thing in San Diego. So with all the travel, all the cities, all the different teams you've been doing for all these years, what are you going to do now? That's a very good question. Might go out of my mind. <laughs> Thank God for uh, San Diego State football and basketball because I'm still under contract to them and looking forward to it greatly. They've given me, my gosh, let's be honest, versus the Padres, San Diego State's given me much, many more wins over the last 10 years in an amazing football and basketball program, which has been, again, good up to this very time, though I'm not, for, I'm for the first time not traveling with them and then doing road games off of television. It's been amazing and bizarre and weird, and hopefully things will be normal. But uh, it's not so much through the year, which has always been, as you said, as Bill did. Nobody did it like Bill King. And that's just, and, and nobody was any better, by the way, than Bill King. That when you go from the spring training, which is finishing up with your basketball and then the NCAA and conference tournaments, and right into the baseball season through in September, when that overlaps with, you know, Major League uh, Baseball and your college football, which rolls into the combination of college basketball and football, which rolls right in again in the spring training with the basketball. Ain't no vacations, but if you want to do that and you have the opportunity, like Bill did, and thank God that I've done it, it's absolutely wonderful. So to answer your question in less than five minutes, which is unlike me, it will be still football and basketball. I just don't know, Chris, what the hell I'm going to do with my summers. I haven't had a summer without baseball since 1979. And that's going to be a challenge, and I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. I will miss baseball play-by-play tremendously, especially with a franchise that I've loved you know, since I began in 1980 when that aforementioned Jerry Coleman left the broadcast booth, became the manager of the club, and that gave me the opportunity to get my foot in the door as a broadcaster. And here I was 41 years later still doing it. Well, we want to honor you today because, as you know, and I can speak for Billy Bean, as we grew up watching you as kids, we've always been huge fans. Uh, you, you're a star down there, and you've had one of the great careers as a broadcaster in so many different sports and what you did, local TV and local radio. We want to honor you and say congratulations. Truly, from the bottom of my heart, you've had one of the best careers we've ever seen. Chris, I appreciate that very, very much. And and you tell Billy I'll be at Cooperstown when he's inducted into the Hall of Fame if I'm still alive at 73. I sure hope so. And I appreciate all your kind words. I really, really do. You're the best. Be well. Be safe. Thank you, Chris. You too. Teddy ball game, as we like to call him. And as he says, Billy Bean will be a baseball Hall of Famer. And then Sparksy, Steve Sparks. We always love talking to Steve. Of course, former A, the knuckleballer. And uh, a lot going on with the Houston Astros. Here's Steve Sparks. How you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the Oakland A's. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Chris. How are you, buddy? Uh, we're doing well. Well, I, you, you got one of your outfielders back today. I mean, everybody had Brantley going to the Toronto Blue Jays, and all of a sudden, reverse course, and he's coming back to Houston. I got to think uh, Astros fans have to be happy about that. That is a bit of a roller coaster. I mean, how often or how infrequent do the national writers get that wrong i i'm kind of shocked that they did get that wrong that it was consummated between uh brantley and the blue jays but man 
so important for the Astros and, and, and what's going on in, in all of their major sports right now to have somebody say, yeah, I want to be back in Houston. Uh, I think it means the world to them. Well, yeah, when, I, when I'm thinking about him, and we were just talking about it, whenever he comes to the plate, it's like, oh, and, and as an ex-pitcher, a guy yeah. like that who can beat you to all fields, power to all fields, power to all gaps, I mean, that guy's a nightmare. He is. You know, he's never off balance, uh, rarely fooled on a pitch. So in, in a person, in any pitcher will tell you, a person who hits the ball where it's pitched is always going to be the toughest ones to get out because there's just basically no holes in their swing. And that's the way he is, man. He just he keeps it very simple. He's got a beautiful swing, a, a very uh, good eye at the plate. And, man, that rubs off. I think hitters like that, and you've seen hitters like that in Oakland's lineup through the last few years. I think Jed Lowry's a good example that rub off on the other guys and their quality at bat. There's a, and, and you know who did that for the A's this year was Tommy LaStella. It was amazing. Yeah, Great. exactly. Like all of a sudden, you know, because we're, we're basically the, the one of the three true outcome teams, you know, home run, walk, strikeout. You put Tommy LaStella in our lineup, it truly changed things. And, yeah, he was a lot like Jed. I mean, as a pitcher, once you ha- when you have a guy that makes that kind of contact, I mean, it changes the lineup. It does. You know, and you can couple that in with a couple other guys, Robbie Grossman, those guys that did kind of the same thing. You just can't have four or five swing and miss guys in a row in a lineup. I think everybody's starting to learn that those three true outcomes really don't make a lot of sense if you're if your lineup's littered with those types of players. Now we got tough about you know talk about the tough one losing Springer to the Blue Jays. You know him yeah. leading off playing center field. His skill set, his athleticism, his power. Boy, is he going to be missed there in Houston. He will. I mean, everything about him, you said, I mean, offensively, production as a player, defensive player, um, what he meant to this team in the clubhouse. You know what? You know what? I don't think he got as much uh, flack for the, the sign stealing stuff. I think, I think, I mean, this might sound crazy, but just the fact that he's not on social media doesn't set himself up for, for criticism. You know, he just, he stood there. He answered the questions. He said, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And you never really heard anything else about it since then, about Springer, just because kind of a stand-up guy to begin with. But I think just the fact that he doesn't put himself up there for the criticism, I think uh, does a lot for guys in these situations. Is there anybody that can replace a guy with his kind of skill set? No. You know what? I mean – as a starting pitcher, you, you certainly realize that the first inning is really tough, no matter no matter who you're facing, just to get into the game and feel the adrenaline on that particular day. And, and just, you know, it's the first inning so different from the third inning for, for that reason. And to, to go out there and, and not face a guy like the, your Brett Butler type of hitter where you, you can just throw one right down the middle and, and – throw it away and let him hit it away and play him that way. You know, that was, that was a little comforting that you knew you didn't have to be really fine on the first pitch of the game. That it was totally different when you had a guy like Springer at the plate, man, you put a, that other team on their heels with that first batter on the very first pitch. And, and to be aggressive like he was at the very beginning, I think set the tone for the Astros for a few years. You know, so funny for our younger audience, you got to look it up. Brett Butler was just the biggest. <laughs> I mean, he was always acting like he was going to bunt, and then he'd pull it back and slash it at you. He was always going to make contact. He had a little bit of speed. He had to be brutal yeah. in face. Yeah, he was brutal. Kenny Lofton was brutal like that. Viscale, when he became a little better hitter, uh, was a lot like that when he got to Cleveland. There's a lot of guys uh, that were just pesky like that, but they didn't. They didn't put fear in your heart like uh, like I think Springer does. Yeah, you know what? I, I don't think there's in, been anybody really like him. You know, maybe you, you go back to Ricky Henderson and Bobby Bonds and some guys like that who could really uh, impact the game with the first batter of the game. But I thought it was genius uh, for the Astros to put him at the top for those years because I think natural inclination would be would be to say bat him third or fourth and drive in 115 runs 
you're wasting your production if you don't do that. But I think I think the opposite was true. I think he was in the perfect spot. Yeah, because they talk about, hey, one of your best hitters, why not lead him off first? He's going to get the most at-bats of anybody during yeah. the year. So it's like you got a you got a 3-4 hitter leading off who's going to get the most A-Bs during a season. Yeah, yeah. And, and the message that that sends to the other side is just like, oh, my gosh. Man, it starts with with the – you know, the first AB and then you got out two, and you, then you got all these guys after it, you know, and it, it makes for a pretty tough outing uh, for a pitcher. And it starts, it starts right away. And that makes it tough, man. You get in the stretch position or you're down one, nothing right away. That's, that's tough to swallow. Yeah. They're going to miss him. You know, you, I'm back to the question, the original question, there's no replacing him. Uh, they'll probably put Altuve or maybe a Bregman at the top of the order. Uh, next year, that's up to Dusty Baker, of course. But uh, uh, I know they'd like somebody impactful because it's worked so well uh, in the years past. Now, with with Springer leaving, kind of freeing up money, will this make yeah. it easier to to sign Carlos Correa? Well, that's that's priority. You know, we we knew this a couple of years ago. I was talking with uh, some of the Blue Jays people today on the radio. And they say, you know, acting like it, we might be surprised that Springer was gone. And I think we all kind of knew that Springer was probably gone when they extended Altuve and Bregman. Uh, when you have two players that are extended to that to that degree, there's really not a lot of room for that six-year, $150 million contract elsewhere if you're going to field, you know, anything but a double-A roster past that. So. I think uh, the Astros knew that. One of their plans uh, years ago was to make sure that all of these guys that they were going to call up, the Altuves, the Bregmans, the Correas, the Springers, the Kyle Tuckers, they weren't going to call these guys up at the same time. They want them staggered, kind of laddered their way to the big league. So it wasn't like the Kansas City Royals a few years ago where everybody became a free agent at the same time, and then you're left empty-handed. Uh you know, they just have to deal with things as they come. I, I'm, I'm not kidding, man. This, this signing of Brantley really helps things in the, in the nature of their outfield is going to become uh, – it's going to seem very bare without Springer to begin with. But if you're going to lose Brantley as well, man, they had a gaping hole. So to get Brantley in there, not only to be such a, a quality hitter and a clubhouse leader, uh, and plus to give the, the – the Astros a little street cred among other major league free agents, uh, knowing that Michael Brantley approves of that situation, uh, I think says a lot too. Uh, it was a big signing for them. What they do with center field, I think Jackie Bradley Jr., Marisnik, there's some free agents out there. Uh, Miles Straw, who, who's on the team right now, is probably the, the incumbent, but they may want to go elsewhere. And then a guy that's got the George Brett no batting gloves, I think, has to step up big for you, wouldn't you say, Kyle Tucker? Well, you know what? When the, you look at the periphery numbers and you look at the analytics and what went on with uh, his hard hit percentage and, and uh, his eye at the plate and all that stuff, not many people think what he did last year was a fluke. Uh, and he was probably their best hitter for, for most of the campaign, that campaign last year. Uh, he's their best base stealer. He's their best base runner. Uh, he's an adequate outfielder. And if, if people are saying that's not fluky, man, they've, they've got, they've got him a good player, a really good player who I think has got a chance to be an, an all-star at some point. So, uh, Kyle Tucker, I think you can pencil him in to be your right fielder. Brantley, the majority of the starts in left field, they'll look probably for somebody in center field and like everybody else, uh, try to, try to rake in two or three more pitchers to try to try to make up for all those innings they're going to have to cover because nobody pitched many last year. Yeah. What do you think about that when you have, I think it's either going to be bad or really, really good. The fact that a lot of guys didn't throw a lot. So maybe that helps the mileage on the tires or it's going to hurt it. If you had to handicap it, not pitching that much, is it going to help pitchers this year or is it going to hurt them? I think it's going to hurt them. I think all the stopping and starting last year and the uncertainty and everything, uh, we saw a lot of pitchers get injured to begin with last year, and I think it's going to carry on. I think uh, I think it's going to be bad, you know, and who knows? You know, we're crossing our fingers probably, 
you know, in my mind, you know, and I'm, this is total speculation. I'm thinking we'll play 140 games, you know, if we get started a little bit late and I know everybody's saying prepare to, to play them all, but it seems kind of far-fetched to me, but even 140, man, you're really taxing guys compared to what they pitched last year. And then you're throwing all kinds of red flags up for the year after that, because, you know, we've always seen Chris through, through these years, you know, when a guy, you know, bumps his innings up by 25% and he's, he's a uh, big-time candidate for Tommy John the next year, and more times than not, that seems to be the case. So they got to be real careful of a lot of that stuff. I heard the Padres are thinking about a six-man rotation at the beginning. I wouldn't be surprised if half the teams in the big leagues maybe adopt that theory this year to kind of naturally pull back on some innings. Well, speaking of Tommy John, one of the greats, and he'll be a Hall of Famer, and Justin Verlander. We know with Tommy John, they really want to make it, and this is for young players, not a player his age. They want to make it around 14 months. Is it safe to say we will not see him this season? You know, I've heard that uh, he would love to pitch the last month just because he's a free agent after that. So I think it probably depends on where we're at as a, as a society, you know, first and foremost. Uh, and then where he's at, you know, health-wise, uh, seeing what he can do maybe uh, as far as going and getting some rehab innings somewhere before he really uh, puts his foot on the gas. And uh, what the Astros might have in place, you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, the Astros know him better than anybody at this point. I mean, he would be a great candidate to, to sign for a year with an option you know, past this, I would trust him in a heartbeat just because of his pedigree uh, to pitch beyond this and pitch very well. So to say that he won't pitch next year, I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, he's the type of guy who can almost put his mind to just about anything and get it done. If you had to handicap the division right now, who would you say is the favorite? I would say the Astros, but not by much. And I think I think I think you can uh, you can bunch them up pretty good, except for the Rangers. I think the Rangers are lagging. I think the Mariners are coming. The Angels, if they if they sign Bauer, if the Angels sign Bauer, I think the the A's and the Astros and the Angels are a coin flip. Yeah, it's so hard to believe. You know, Texas opens that new beautiful ballpark, and it's just like. I mean, you, you never even had a honeymoon period. I mean, it's it's really really. Yeah. It is, you know, but it's so cyclical. Uh, you know, right now it just doesn't make a lot of sense for them to to go all in with free agents. They just got so far to go as far as their offense that they realize, all right, we've got some assets. Lance Lynn, all right, see what we can get for Lance. You know, and, and they had to get rid of some guys, and, and so that makes it even, you know, even more bare right now. So. I think this team's going to be good probably in in three or four years because I think they have a lot of smart people in place. I don't know if you've been around Woodward very much, their their manager, but man, he seems like a sharp guy. And I think they're doing things the right the right way finally, but it took them a while to get there. I think they they felt they were closer than they were uh, to get into contention. You know, it's weird here in Northern California. We've been locked down since March. Uh, we're going to be locked down coming up here. It'll be a a year, you know, yep. it, it, you know, watching football and watching college football and watching, you know, there's going to be fans in the stands. I just, I, I, I don't think the Astros again this year are going to get the, the, the full blunt from the fan bases. Cause I just don't, I mean, you can tell me, I just don't think there's going to be that many people in the ballpark to make a difference. Yeah. And think about it. I, I don't think there's more than, seven guys left from that roster of the team that won the championship, you know, the team that was the, the most guilty of all the stuff that, uh, that happened in the sign stealing stuff. So uh, pretty, you know, pretty soon there's not going to be any, anybody left uh, on the roster and it's going to be, it's going to be almost forgotten as many things that have gone on since then. Uh, I think it's probably going to uh, wane quite a bit. You know, and I don't understand, you know, I don't understand where people are going to be, you know, by the time uh, they see 25% or 50% capacity to, to boost some of these guys. I just don't know how much of an impact that's going to really make. Most importantly, how are you hitting them this offseason? 
you know what? Uh, I'm hitting them okay. You know, it's kind of off and on. I got my handicap down to a one at one point, and it's it's back up to a three and a half or a four. So I just I go through that little roller coaster. It you either make putts or you don't, man. It comes down to putting so often. <laughs> you watch these guys on tour, and that's what it is. You gotta you it you, you gotta have drain them. You're not draining them. It is what it is. It's so stupid. The easy. That's what makes it so infuriating. The thing that seems like it should be the easiest is the hardest because your expectations are so high. And the three foot putt, I mean, there's even more expect. It's almost like a three and zero count in baseball. Is you see a guy's eyes light up and he puts too much pressure on himself and he pops it up in the infield. That's pretty much uh, that sums up my golf game right there. And their and their short games are so stupid. It's unbelievable. Oh yeah, you know, I mean. It's like big leaguers. I mean, they spend uh, a lot of hours every single day to perfect that craft, and they've got all the right information. Uh, man, I would have given anything to, to have some of these slow-speed cameras when I was pitching uh, to be able to look and see what I was doing wrong when things weren't going right. That's, these players uh, who are taking advantage of it are doing it the right way. Hey, you're the best. We always appreciate it. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk soon. Uh, Great talking to you, Chris. Good luck, man. Broadcasting legends, we want to thank Howie Rose, Ted Leitner, and Steve Sparks for joining A's Cast Live. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.